Welcome back to another episode of the Psycho Podcast. I'm your host, Margot Underwood, and this is a place where I have the pleasure of interviewing specialists, authors, doctors, psychologists on the topics of human sexuality. This is a place where we break stigmas and bust hymens, deconstruct taboos, initiate more self-pleasure in our lives, expose alternative therapies to approach these sensitive topics. Thanks for joining me here. In today's episode, we are once again joined by the lovely Dr. Daryl Ray, author of Sex and God, founder of recoveringfromreligion.org and the Secular Therapy Project. He started Recovering From Religion podcast as well as the Secular Sexuality Podcasts. So if you're really trying to dive deep into these topics, go search out for his books, which will be posted in the link below, as well as his um, foundations. Today, we're going to cover why religion and sexuality are so intrinsically connected, how religion dominates our language, thinking patterns, sexuality, as well as social conditionings. We're going to touch on topics such as the hidden estrus, why it's important and what it is. We also cover the topic of pair bonding, uh, which is why we inherently choose certain partners to be sexual with and intimate with over strangers. So we have a lot to cover today and let's go ahead and jump into it. All right. So, all right. So we're going to talk about sex today. My favorite topic. Sex, Thank baby. you. <laughs> going right. to talk about you and me. Um, okay. Yeah. So our favorite topics um, and something that I've been so curious about but never really had someone to ask this question to in your words how do you feel like how do you feel like religion affects our sexuality overall i gosh margot i think it just uh dominates our sexuality Mm -hmm. and within our culture and within any well especially within any patriarchal culture Mm -hmm. because what it does it's it 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 sets an agenda that's, of course, male-dominated from the from the day you're born, and and that's going to fuck up people's lives. It's gonna it's gonna mean women's sexuality is always put second or fifth, <laughs> and male sexuality is going to be skewed towards crazy things that that are damaging to the ability to create healthy sexual relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it leads to misogyny. It leads to males, in, in the incel movement. Uh, I'm actually in the process of writing a book, right? Uh, not a book, an article right now, on how much the purity culture has gotten into the male men's rights movement, and the notion of uh, purity is is pervades things like QAnon mm-hmm. and other crazy, crazy conspiracy theory stuff. There's a hell of a lot of misogyny in those. And I'm and I asked the question, where did that come from? Well, it came from religious ideas about virginity, female purity, male dominance. <coughs> all these things are really, really <coughs> prevalent in our in our culture. And they all come from Christian religion, of course. That's really interesting that you you brought up QAnon because uh, I know quite a few people who are um, believers, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and they have been or are very uh, heavily influenced by religion. Um, yeah, it, it is a cult. QAnon is a cult. It meets a lot of the definitions of a cult. Yeah, it's a... just a modern cult. It's an internet cult. We've we didn't have the internet fifty years ago, so we we didn't have internet cults. I think we're going to see we're seeing those now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's quite actually, I never, I mean, I kind of made that connection, but they don't preach religion in QAnon directly. Um, Right. It's more indirect messages. Uh, Yeah, right. Interesting. Those indirect messages are very sexually oriented. I mean, we don't think of it as sexual, but if you just watch... That that it's per, uh, the notion of cuck cuck holding. Uh-huh. That's a sexual notion if you think about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And and how much do QAnon people I mean the greatest insult they can do to somebody, another person, another male person, male identified person, is to call him a cuck. I mean that's that's a supposedly that. an insult. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And just look at the whole QAnon literature. It's full of references to cucks. In other words, anybody. Anybody that disagrees with us, anybody that doesn't it's believe in the conspiracy theory is probably a cuckold. Oh and God. they don't know how to control. And well, what is a cuckold? A cuckold is a man that doesn't know how to control a woman. Mm. I mean, that's, we get it from, I don't know if you know the roots of the term cuckold. I don't know the roots. Would you like to explain? Yeah. A cuckoo. A cuckoo. A cuckoo. Uh, the, the bird cuckoo. Cuckoos do not build their own nests. What a cuckoo does is invades the forest and finds an appropriate nest of another bird, lays its eggs in the other bird's nest, and then when that and then flies off, doesn't take care of the baby. When the baby hatches, the baby then uh, crowds out the legitimate eggs and the legitimate babies, fledglings in the nest. The the mother comes to feed, and she she bonds to whatever's in that nest. Well, if it's a bird that's twice or three times as big as a baby should be, they don't even notice. So they end up feeding the biggest, loudest bird, mm-hmm. which is a, which is really a cuckoo baby. Mm-hmm. And the, the other two babies that are in the nest, or three babies, literally get shoved out. The cuckoo pushes the eggs out or pushes Savage. the other babies out. So there's only one baby left in the nest, and that's the cuckoo baby. And that's where we get the word cuckold, huh. because... Uh, another man or a, 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 another nest, another female, another entity is raising that those eggs. Mm-hmm. And the female is not taking care of the babies in this case. But the, the word cuck comes from that. Oh, and there's other there's other species that do similar kinds of things. It's actually more common in birds than anybody knew. There's uh, the cowbird does the same thing, lays eggs in somebody else's nest and then flies off. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what. It, so if, if in QAnon, when you want to insult somebody, you call them a cuck. And it implies a very misogynistic sexual idea that men should be in charge of women. And a cuck is a man that can't control his women. Uh, pretty. That's fucked pretty up. Pretty simple idea. <laughs> yeah. And that is fucked up because that is and that's pretty much fundamental QAnon ideology. Wow. Period. Just just look look at how many times they use the word cuck, how many times they insult each other with that word, and every time they say it, they're saying, you're a man that can't control women. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Now, there's a reason why the, uh, the whole cuckold idea is mostly, not cuckold, QAnon is largely male. I mean, look at who... Look who rioted on the on the Capitol steps. It was probably ten men for every one woman. Uh-huh. It's and male dominance is just pervasive among those uh, most movements. Mm-hmm. So anyway. interesting. Now I have a question for my uh, for my friends about this whole cuckolding thing. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, especially since they're so um, sexually re- like suppressed, it's like oh, they are. They don't even know right. that they. That's so crazy. Um, which leads me to like, why would religion even want to uh, influence or control our sexualities in the first place? Like, what kind of power does that give them over us? It does. Well, if you can control someone's sexuality, you can control them. It's, it's mm-hmm. almost that simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have an incredibly strong sex drive. Mm-hmm. That's I true. I mean, at almost everybody. Not everybody. I mean, there are legitimately people who don't have a strong sex drive or asexual. 
or you know any number of other combinations. But our sex drive is strong no matter what that quote combination is oftentimes. And what religion learned thousands of years ago was if you can control the sexuality of a person, then you can control much more about that person. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about this. You, it, the most perverted sexual act, act I can think of is a celibate priest or nun. That is fucking perverted. Why? Because it goes against every. It goes against everything nature wants. It's true. You are as a priest or a nun. You're basically saying, "I will not reproduce." Yeah. Well, why? Why won't you reproduce? Because I'm. I'm not. My interest is not in reproducing biologically. The interest is in reproducing religiously. Uh -huh. I want to reproduce as many Catholic people as I can, and I do that best by becoming a priest or a nun. And not so, giving your, I guess, attention away to these uh, pleasures, these worldly pleasures. Exactly. Right? Sexual energy is now diverted and focused on God, mm -hmm. supposedly. Very now, strange. of course, the priest, the priest still has the priest or the nun still has the sexual energy. What are they going to do with that? Well, they're going to go out and molest little boys or rape girls or... You know, that sort of stuff. Uh -huh. So the sexual energy will get expressed some way, and it's usually inappropriate. Mm. Supposedly, it's being focused on God. And, I mean, think about this. There's nuns that think they're married to Jesus. Isn't that a sexual notion? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean. Uh, the notion of virginity is a sexual notion. Mm -hmm. It's a religious sexual notion. There's no such thing as virginity. There's no concept or need for a concept in biology of virginity. And oh, by the way, we don't have male virgins. We only seem to have female virgins. So if the notion of not having had sex before defines a virgin, then males and females both are virgins. Of course, we joke about that, but that's a fact. There's no, no need for that in biology. So it's a religious notion, period. <laughs> So you're asking the question, where does religion impact our sex lives <laughs> from the day you hear the word virgin or sooner? Right. <laughs> like don't have sex before you get married, which I have, have uh, kind of an off, you know, offhand question here. But have you, I'm sure you have come across this concept that, and I don't mean to generalize, but I'm going to, um, there are certain men or women, but mostly men, who like to have two partners. And one is this pure, angelic, like never, you know, doesn't have sex, quote unquote, with other people or just them. And then they have this right, like right. dirty little slut that they, they keep separate. And I actually know a few people in my life who participate in this. And I called one of them out the other day and I was like, you know, you kind of look like you're doing this thing. And I'm trying, I want to understand the psychology behind that as like, as to, you know, why some people feel the need to have this pure, um, and, and then separate it from this, uh, dirty little slut that they still want. I actually... I actually did an entire podcast on my podcast about four years ago on, it's called the Madonna whore complex. Right. Okay. Have you heard, you've heard it before, uh -huh. right? Madonna whore. Yes. It's as most commonly found among Catholic men mm. or those raised in a, under Catholic influence. You don't see the Madonna whore among people raised in Baptists or Buddhists or, uh, you do see it a little bit among, uh, or you do see it, not a little bit, you do see it among Muslim Muslim men uh, as well. Hmm. But it's a, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a, it's, it comes from the, from the notion of female purity. And you're raised to say that women are, you know, you put women on a pedestal, women can't like sex, women shouldn't have sex. Any woman that has sex outside marriage is a slut and all that. Well, it's like, you can't have that candy that's in the drawer. That, that's just, we got a whole, I got a whole stash of chocolate candy in one of my drawers. <laughs> and uh, I tell my girlfriend, you can't have that chocolate candy in that drawer. And what happens within a week, it's all gone and I didn't get any of it. <laughs> and if it's not there, she'll say, where'd you hide the chocolate? <laughs> well, the fact is, 
it, when you tell somebody they can't have something, that makes it very attractive. Yeah. So the uh, for so the slut kind of the slut side of that is, oh, that's the dirty, uh, forbidden side, and then the Madonna is the virginal innocent side. Well, both have their attractions, mm -hmm. and I do actually know people couples. And it's almost it, it, it. The Madonna whore is per, perpetuated by males. It's it. I, I've never seen it a female. Okay. <laughs> I'm just I'm just generalize. saying. Maybe maybe it maybe it has. I don't know. But um, I think men can be sluts and whores probably too. But I just don't see it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is the the man feels this incredible need. I. I, in order to be what my mother taught me to be, what my church taught me to be, I have to marry the Madonna. I have to marry mm -hmm. the innocent, the, you know, that sort of. But, but I also want the forbidden. So I'm going to go over here and find, quote, the slut, the whore. And I'm going to keep my part because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sin to commit adultery, of course, mm. or have sex outside of marriage or whatever. And I can't let these two people know about it. Well, you know, that's not that's not ethical non-monogamy. That's just fucking cheating mm -hmm. is what it is. And uh, I'm all about ethical non-monogamy. And if somebody wants to play the Madonna whore thing, I, I actually have a friend whose wife, he, he and his wife do this. She plays the whore sometimes. She mm -hmm. plays the Madonna sometimes. But it's the same person. Mm -hmm. and they're but, but they're open about it. Mm -hmm. And they actually negotiate how that all is going to come about. It's kind of a... It's kind of a kink, if you think. I love it. <laughs> and and I know people, I mean, I know men who are polyamorous. I know lots of men and women that are polyamorous and they've they kind of do that, but it's it's uh it's all known. Yeah. It's up front. Of course. Yes. Uh, I I, <laughs> I even went to a BDSM conference one time. And this this is the ultimate. They they had a dress up night. One of the two nights was a dress up night at the BDSM conference, and you know during the day you're going to you're going to uh, demonstrations and mm -hmm. lectures and stuff on different and you know demonstration on how to flog somebody or how do you fire play and that sort of stuff. Well, that evening there was a dress up, and I'd really I was really interested in this this uh, triad. It was a, a guy and two women. And that evening, one of the women's dressed up like a nun, oh. and the other one was definitely dressed up like a whore. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so, of course, I was dead curious about it. They said, yep, that's the way we play our kink. She, she's always the whore, and she's always the, the, the nun. But, you know, but no nun. Oh, the nun. Right. There's a difference between a nun <laughs> and an angel. <laughs> Because this nun was very sexual, but she, uh, she, you know, it was fun to have sex with her habit on. She had her habit on and she would have sex with her habit on. And of course, yeah. So people can act these things out ethically. Right. And that was what they were doing. And it was great. I loved it. It was funny and fun to watch them do it. It's not my kick, but I was, it was fun to watch yeah, somebody else. Of course. <laughs> I would, I would, I mean, that psychology manifesting in physical form in front of your face it's your life's yeah. work <laughs> that's all awesome. right uh let's see so i just want to emphasize that from the day you're born you're born into a religion or you're at least born into a religious culture and that culture if it's catholic for example starts teaching you about the madonna madonna the virgin birth the the pure purity of of the of the female and that sort of stuff mm -hmm. And, and and men men pick this up, and in a patriarchal culture, where men are men are taught from the day they're born that you have to be dominant, or you're or you're a cuck. I mean, that's basically what mm -hmm. cueing on people. There's so many so many purity kinds of things coming into kids at a very young age, and it really affects them when they get to be teenagers and they're having they're starting to have sexual feelings and wanting to masturbate and they're being told, well, if you masturbate, you're, you're sinning. And so that creates all sorts of short circuits in the brain and kids. I mean, I see kids I have known over my career, kids getting virtually suicidal over their masturbatory urges. I bet. And where, where would you, 
where would you be so disturbed that vast that you would want to kill yourself over masturbating only only if you were taught that that is a mortal sin you're going to hell for having done it <laughs> a so perfectly much shame. fucking normal normal thing that any 12 13 14 year old boy or girl is going to do so this is deep stuff mm-hmm. and if you can get a 12 or 13 year old person feeling that bad about their body i mean think about it from the day you're born you're told your body is your enemy mm-hmm. that you shouldn't listen to your body that you should uh i mean paul even says you should kill your own body in the in the name of god you know kill your desire so to speak so there's a lot of wow. religion that comes around this and i'm guessing whether you were raised religious or not you still heard these things absolutely i mean and i yeah yeah. I mean, it's in our schools. So I have this interesting, I had this really interesting conversation with someone the other night. Um, I used the word, well, I, I, I kind of announced to the table that one of my favorite words is cunt. And I just really like where it comes from in my throat. It just sounds good. I like to give it that power back, you know, because it's been taken away from us for so long. And this woman got super offended. So does religion kind of, has religion kind of taken control over all those types of curse words in a way? Like where, where do you feel like that offensive energy was coming from? Cause she felt like it was a really degrading word. And I think it can be if the intention behind it is, you know, malicious, but you know, I, I think I was just, I'm kind of a button pusher. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> it's kind of my downfall at times. But uh, she, by the end of the night, she asked for my number and, and everything was good. But I'm just kind well, of Have you actually talked to her? Um, she texted me. We were connecting, but it, it was kind of, she. I was introducing her to, um, I want to introduce her and her, her partner to the dungeon here in town. And they were really interested in BDSM. So, uh, and, you know, I was just kind of giving them a lowdown on what I do. <laughs> so they were, you know, really, really interested. And, uh, and that was after the whole cunt conversation. She was trying to, to justify this, like, well, she can call guys dicks, but she won't call women cunts. And I was like, well, that feels like there's a little dissonance happening right there. Um, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. It was really weird. Yeah. I was trying to wrap my, ra- my brain around <laughs> it and having this conversation with you. I'm like, is that religiously influenced? Of course it is. Yeah. Of course. Where, where where would you get the whole idea that, that any of this is wrong? Right. I mean, where? <laughs> yeah. Like, we are cunt taught- is dirty. I'm like, well, what? What? I like cunt. Yeah. <laughs> Well, think about all the words that were dirty 50, 100 years ago. That right. I mean, I could sit here and use the word fuck. I mean, it's still inappropriate in a lot of circles, but I'm not going to. But I use it. And um, 50 years ago, I'd have been drummed out of the house. Mm-hmm. Like my mother would have washed my mouth out with soap and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, language changes. And language is influenced by religion. And we are constantly seeing religion redefine what is appropriate what's not appropriate because religion has to keep up with the as i I write in my book the god virus religion is a is a is a parasitic infection Mm -hmm. and it gets in our brains and it 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 wants to it wants to own our brains and then it wants to move from one brain to the next brain just like a virus does just like the covid wants to do or a, a brain virus that or another virus that affects the nervous system is rabies. Rabies once gets from me to you. Well, religion is constantly having to change though, because we have immunity. We gain immunity to things. I mean, you, we gain immunity to other religious infections. If a Jehovah's witness comes, knocks on your door, they're trying to sneeze on you and give you their, their God virus. But you've got pretty, you probably got a pretty high resistance you've got a, You've got immunity. Another religion comes to your door and in the form of maybe QAnon and comes at you at an angle that you weren't expecting, you might get infected with that and then become 
a cult member. Mm -hmm. That's what Scientology does. It says, hey, come over here and take our little test at the table at the grocery store and see if you're under stress. Well, of course, you're going to be under stress. And they're going to show you how to get out of it. And before you know it, you're giving $100,000 over a 10-year period to Scientology. It happens. It happens over and over again. So cults, it's an infection. And religions, in order, in order to be able to infect more people, they have to modify. They have to mutate. They have to evolve. Yeah. I mean, the, the Catholic religion of today looks nothing like the Catholic religion of 1450. That's so true. Yeah, it's constantly changing. Yeah. The Baptist Church in 1840, uh, the Baptist Southern Baptist Church was created out of the Baptist Church in around 1840 over the issue of slavery. There was a Northern Baptist and a Southern Baptist. They split. And the Southern Baptists kept slavery. They mm -hmm. weren't against it. Until 1970, they didn't even take the issue of slavery out of their out of their charter. The Southern Baptists still had slave positive slave slave language in their charter in 1970. So you could see that Baptist churches evolved a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, language, religious language evolves as well. And what what was inappropriate 100 years ago is now okay today or less offensive. I mean, you you see these preachers getting up front and using what, quote, inappropriate language more than you ever saw 50 years ago. Uh, I You'll even hear a, a preacher from the pulpit use the word damn occasionally now. Yeah. Actually, well, that was unheard yeah. of. Yeah. Unheard of 50 or 100 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, they have to evolve to... To, uh, stay to keep alive. relevant. Yeah, to stay relevant. Yeah, to stay alive. Mm -hmm. The religion that doesn't evolve is dead. There, mm -hmm. if you think about it, there's uh, of all the species on the planet, probably ninety nine point nine percent of all the species that ever existed on the planet are extinct. We are the we are the point point oh oh one species that have survived. Well, the religion's the same way. Think how many religions are extinct today. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of religions are now dead and we'll never know anything about them. They died 10,000 years ago mm -hmm. or they died a thousand years ago. I mean, the Shakers are pretty much a dead religion. They lasted for about 150 years. Uh, Mormons are a dying religion, but they started back in 1838. Uh, but they're going downhill real quick mm -hmm. at this point in time. Joe's Witnesses uh, started about the same time and they're going downhill. Uh, pretty fast. So I think we'll see a extinct Jehovah's Witness within 50 years. Probably take another 50 years to kill off Mormons. Oh my gosh. That's fascinating. I hope uh, I hope someone hears that. <laughs> I hope a Jehovah's Witness <laughs> hears that and they're like, oh, mutiny! <laughs> um, I, I wonder what how it's how kind of Christianity is going. I mean, that's the only one I can really think of right now in terms of evolving with the this kind of sexual revolution that's happening right now. And I mean, we had a, a revolution in the 70s um, when it came to, our, uh, you know, the whole free love movement and stuff. Did you notice like in your research where religion has evolved in that aspect in terms of evolving with sexuality to kind of keep people attracted? Yeah. Look at, look what happened uh, in the late seventies, early eighties with the beginning of the religious right mm -hmm. and Jerry Falwell, uh, Pat Robertson, those were all the religious right movement uh, founders. And from that came the purity culture. And purity culture is just a religious idea that uh, it's an old idea repackaged that women should stay virgins until marriage, that women should dress modestly, that they shouldn't have sex and they shouldn't enjoy sex. All those things come out of purity culture and that men should have control of their daughters. I mean, remember, I don't know, it's not been that long ago, they're having those purity dances where the father would go with his daughter to a purity dance, put a ring on the daughter's finger and make her promise that she wouldn't have sex until she got married. 
That's not been that many years ago, and those were popular. They're still probably going on. I'm just not aware of where right. they are. That's weird. But the whole purity culture thing then moved into schools where uh -huh. they couldn't, they wanted to fight sex education. So what they did was they got, uh, they created a, a, what appeared to be a secular sex education program that was really purity culture. And it basically taught that, I mean, Absolutely. remember that uh, you probably heard about it. Abstinence only bullshit. Mm. That's just purity culture stuff. And they would talk about chewing gum. You know, if you, you wouldn't chew somebody else's gum, well, why would you uh. want to have sex with a woman who's already had sex? She's been chewed up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. It's horrible. It's, it's so misogynistic. It's so male dominated and uh, just very disrespectful and yeah. frankly ignorant about human sexuality. Mm hmm. So let me back way up because you haven't asked this question, but I want to get to this mm -hmm. angle. I wrote I wrote my book Sex and God with the sole purpose of saying let's go back and look at what sex would be like if we didn't have this crazy religion around us. What does sex look like before Western culture? What did sex looks like before Muhammad, before Jesus, before Moses, before Zoaster? I mean, each one of those gets older and older. Zoaster. So Esther predated Moses. Mm -hmm. And so we got four different major leaders. What was sex like before those four major leaders came on the scene? Because all four of those leaders preached misogynistic male-dominated sexuality. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, you have to go back about 10,000 years before any of these religions were, were made. Or there's an alternative. You go to places that haven't been strongly influenced by Western culture, like the Hadza of West Africa, uh, East Africa, or the Muoso of China, or the Manganian tribes in the Southern Pacific. So these are peoples that have been fairly isolated. I won't say they haven't been influenced, but they have resisted the influence. Mm -hmm. And they've got sexual practices that are so different. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, the Moso, uh, there's no word for father. There's no word for husband or wife because there's no marriage in that culture. Uh, the, the, ch the woman stays in the, in the compound of her, of her birth. And brothers, when they get of age, leave. Brothers have to leave the compound and go find a wife, go find a place to live somewhere else. Uh, daughters, women stay in the compound. Uncles, Uncles become the father figure. Uh, it, there's there's no father in there because they don't. A woman can have as many sex partners as she wants mm -hmm. in the Mooso culture. And so when a when a child becomes thirteen or fourteen, has her first menstrual cycle, she goes from being a child to being a woman overnight. Mm -hmm. The it's the menstrual cycle that defines what a woman is. There is no adolescence. So at the time the woman has that cycle, then she now is a woman. She can have as many lovers as she wants. She gets a door to the outside of the compound. She can invite men in. There's only one rule. The man has to be out before breakfast. The men may not stay uh, any longer than that. They have to go back. You may walk 20 miles to get back home, but that's that's the culture. Mm -hmm. And that nobody gets married. If you ask a woman, who's the father of this child, she'd laugh at you. Mm -hmm. There's, there's nobody... I don't know. I've had sex with 10 guys this last year. Mm -hmm. How would I know? It's unimportant to them. So think about that. How does that contrast with Catholic sex or Mormon sex? <laughs> and it's really fascinating, too, because it takes like, why? Why do you feel like? What kind of impact does that have on a child's like um development it, like i feel like it would be kind of a positive thing and is that more of like a matriarchal um way of you know of matriarchal run society rather than patriarchal yeah it's more matriarchal but it's more matrilineal uh, -huh. uh the males of the of the compound do have a say it's not like the females uh, there's very few so-called matriarchal cultures mm -hmm. on the planet there are have been a few probably uh but there's certainly males there's certainly for example a really interesting uh, fascinating i think uh the 
the five civilized tribes, so supposed so-called civilized tribes in North America, especially the Iroquois, had a had a tradition or a, a, an approach that was kind of matriarchal. They had a matrilineal. You know the difference between matriarchal and matrilineal? No. Can you please explain that? Okay. Yeah. Matriarchal means uh, uh, governed by. The, right. the, the woman is the is the head of the household, so to speak, or head of the culture. Uh, matrilineal means you trace your lineage through the female. Jewish culture is patriarchal, but matrilineal. You trace your lineage in the Jewish culture through the woman. Okay. You cannot be a born Jew unless you were born of a woman, mm. period. So if you trace back through women, you're, you're, you're a Jew. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's kind of here, neither here nor there. So a, a major, in the Iroquois, only women could vote and only men could serve in political office. So when it comes time to elect the president, they had a five-person president. Each tribe elected one president, and they became the governors, the so-called chiefs of all the tribes. Uh, if, if you were up for election as a chief, uh, it was the women that voted. <laughs> so, uh, so if the men want to, if the men want to run for office, they're going to have to get the women's vote. <laughs> right. Kind of. A, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I like that. Only men could serve, but only women could vote. It's interesting. Now, I'm not advocating that that's the right way to do anything, yeah. but it, it's a different way. Yeah. And it really ensures that women get their say. I mean, how do you how do you have a male-dominated culture? How do you go to war if women don't want to go to war? You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Iroquois were a very warlike tribe, and they dominated. The five civilized tribes dominated all of the Northeast. Uh, they were. This is before um, Western culture came in. I want to go to another place. Think about this before Western before Western influence, Iroquois and other um, other tribes would live in longhouses, and these are huge log constructions that you know might be 50, 60, 100 feet long, and multiple families would live in there, and there's no necessarily no dividing. So if you want to have sex, how do you have sex? Well, you go over into your particular part of the thing and you start having sex. And if somebody walks by seeing you having sex, they just ignore you. It's no big deal. Sex in many cultures is is semi-public. Yeah. In the sense that you can have all the sex you want, you know, the rest of the tribe just ignores you when, when you're enjoying yourself. Yeah. I mean, um, makes sense. I, yeah, I mean, I've been to. I mean, you know, when I go to the clubs and I see it, see other people having sex, it's kind of just like, yeah, okay, what's going on over there? What's going on over there? <laughs> like, I want it to be so normalized. It's like, because it is just another thing, and and it's also kind of beautiful to watch too. It's, everyone has their it, own, you know, preferences and right. likes and dislikes. Um, yeah. I was talking to a friend last night about the uh, how we function as a society off of a 24-hour male hormonal cycle, and the uh, and what it would be like if we were functioning off of a 28-day cycle, um, and then like really what it came down to was like, okay, we are a patriarchal society. What does it look, what would it look like if we were a matriarchal society? <laughs> Have you ever contemplated that? Uh, yeah, actually, if you think about it, almost every species on the planet goes on the, on the female cycle mm -hmm. with, there's only, there's only five last count. There's only five uh, species on the planet that we know of that uh, have hidden estrus. Estrus. Uh, are you familiar with the turn of hidden estrus? Mm -mm. Hit, okay, a chimpanzee, when the when the female is is in quote in heat or is fertile, her butt turns bright red, and everybody in the tribe knows she's fertile mm -hmm. and ready ready to have her eggs fertilized. That's what most of the species on the planet do. At nighttime, when you go out and you listen. You listen to the birds singing in the day, or you listen to the crickets singing at night. They're all singing to get laid. 
Mm -hmm. That's almost the whole reason for a cricket to sing or a locust. They're trying to get laid. And the only time they're going to get laid is when the female is fertile. Mm -hmm. And it's the only time females are going to let the male mate with, with them. So only five, only five species don't advertise that the female's fertile, and we are one of them. We're not mm -hmm. totally sure why, but it seems to be really important to our species to hide when the female is fertile. But what that also means is we can have sex anytime we want to. Mm -hmm. And that seems to have something to do with, with keeping the pair bond, because it, it takes so much longer to bring a child to wean a child and bring a child to self-sufficiency. You absolutely need support until the child's about five years old. Mm -hmm. Without that, the child's probably gonna die. So if, if you can keep the man involved for four or five years, then, and, and protecting the child until they're somewhat independent, then, um, then that child's probably gonna survive. So it has, it may have to do with, well, you can't hold the interest of in the man if the woman's not open to having sex. There's no way to keep the pair bond going. Mm. That I'm not sure that's always true because we do know other species pair bond. Uh, in fact, lots of birds pair bond, but they're not monogamous. Mm -hmm. there, there's a difference between pair bonding and monogamous. Uh, and we know they're not monogamous because if you do the DNA of the swan who's or the goose who's famous for being pair bonded, you'll find out that many of those eggs are by somebody else. Mm. <laughs> Again, cuckolding, mm -hmm. if you will. <laughs> the female went off and had sex with another man, and now she's laying that other man's eggs, and this man is having to deal with the eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great book called the, the Myth of Monogamy, written about 15 years ago by Lipton and Barash, a male well, man-wife uh, team of, uh, I can't remember if they're biologists. One's a biologist, one's a psychiatrist, I think fascinating book but but here's the deal um i can look up here helen fisher sounds really familiar uh, yeah helen fisher wrote a book years ago and she documents she's a she's an anthropologist she documented that the highest divorce rate is somewhere around four or five years well if you see a pattern in a culture that mm -hmm. shows that the pair bonding is being broken at about four or five years, and the symbol of that is divorce, then you start asking the question, I wonder if there's a biological reason for that. Yeah. And lo and behold, there is a biological reason. You've heard of new relationship energy? Yes. Okay. Well, we all love it. It's great. <laughs> it, and it's, it's when that oxytocin is flowing and we're getting all sorts of dopamine and all things are happening in response to our mate, uh, I can just look at my mate and get a shot of dopamine. I can just look at my mate, you know, and feel the love, mm -hmm. which is really oxytocin coming out probably. Well, this lasts for about four or five years. Mm -hmm. Now we even have, we even have a saying in our culture, uh, the honeymoon phase. Right. <laughs> we call it the honeymoon phase. Well, the honeymoon phase is the phase where the pair bond is happening. If you look at it biologically, it's getting the two people together. It's getting the baby born. It's keeping the two people together. And what we see is the testosterone in male humans decreases dramatically after the birth of a baby and stays low for quite a while and then may start coming back up. Why would testosterone go down after the birth of a baby? Because you need the man to stick around. Mm -hmm. You don't want a horny guy running out, screwing too many other people because then he won't take care of, help the woman take care of the baby. So we have some good, pretty strong evidence that that hidden estrus is, is there, evolutionary, evolutionarily uh, evolved mm -hmm. to keep the man and the woman together long enough to, keep, to get the baby. Mm. Um, so as long as you keep having sex during, during that time, you'll keep bringing the oxytocin back. Mm -hmm. Now, if you put an oxytocin blocker in, the testosterone comes back. If you put a test, uh, uh, there, there's, there's, other, there's other species that we've, voles, there's, there's a monogamous vole. Been a very interesting experiment for years on this. 
if you put an oxytocin blocker in there, the voles don't bond and the male becomes quite promiscuous. If you, if you do the opposite and uh, increase the oxytocin, voles that a species of bulb that does not pair bond will start pair bonding. So we can manipulate pair bonding just by manipulating something, a, a chemical like mm -hmm. oxytocin. A hormone. Okay. Now, what's all that got to do with religion? We'll come back to that, but but I just want to throw that out. Well, I and I mean, monogamy is. You brought up the myth of monogamy, and right. How I mean, I've I've heard I know ish that monogamy is a somewhat new concept in our society. Um, it's a new concept to humans. To humans. Is, Period. Okay. Yeah. It's not been around that long. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, like you were saying, these other cultures, they don't practice monogamy. Right. So, right. And neither do we. We, yeah. we don't practice monogamy either. No matter how much you think many, you do, you're really not. Because you are, you know, you cannot stop that natural, you know, attraction to other people. Even if right, you're in a relationship right. with someone, and then, like, of course, the more you deny it, the more you're lying to yourself, and and uh, you're, you know, slowly going down this like avalanche of of creating distrust. Well, there's, there's uh, you're you're putting a moral slant to it that comes from our culture. Let me go back and put a biological slant mm -hmm. to it. the The notion of monogamy. If you if you look at it from a biological standpoint, or in some ways a religious standpoint, the definition of monogamy is one sex partner for life. Mm -hmm. Period. There's a fish called the anglerfish. Uh, the female is gigantic. The male is really small. Uh, when they mate, the male embeds himself, literally drills in, embeds himself into the skin of the female. And kind of much uh, dissolves and leaves his gonads intact. And that's monogamy. He's there the rest of his life. Right. That's one sex partner for life for the guy. Now, there might be other males come in. I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, I was doing a talk one time and I said, monogamy is one sex partner for life. And the angler fish, here's the way they work. After my talk, a woman came up to me and said, you know that story about the angler fish and embedding yourself? My ex-husband was like that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so here's the deal. Monogamy is one sex partner for life. Yeah. I, in my talks, I might have two, 300 people in my talks. And I'll, I'll, during the talk, I will ask, how many of you know someone who's monogamous? And I'll get quite a few people raising their hand, maybe half the people raise their hand. And then I'll ask this simple question. If it's, if it's not you, how would you know? Mm -hmm. because many, many people lie about their sexual history. We have tons of evidence that people lie about their sexual history. Yeah. If you've had two sex partners in your life, you're not monogamous by definition. Mm, I see. Even if we make the, let's say you have a spouse die and you remarry. Okay, I'll give you that. You could <laughs> still be, quote, monogamous. But that's not what I'm talking about. The Hadza culture has a has a practice, and I'll call it a practice, but it's not conscious. Women tend to mate with one man and stay with that man for four or five years. Yeah. After she gets tired of him, she kicks him out, and she takes in another man. She might have five, 10, 15, quote, husbands in mm -hmm. a lifetime. That's, that's just the way they do it. Mm -hmm. But you, if you look at it, that seems to match the four or five year cycle of uh, a honeymoon, if you will, mm -hmm. the pair bonding long enough to get a child up to independence. Mm -hmm. And then you split and have a baby with another man. That is makes more sense genetically for women than having one man constantly impregnating the same woman. Mm -hmm. It's good for him maybe, but it's not good for her. A woman having babies with multiple men spreads her genes out. What if the one man she's married to and never had sex with anybody else has a genetic defect? 
then sure. that genetic defect is going to get propagated potentially in all of her children. Mm-hmm. Well, if she just has one child with a different man every four or five years, by the time she's had five or six kids, she spread her genes out and there's no bad gene getting propagated except in maybe one child. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's It's a genetic strategy that kind of answers your question. What if we were in a monogamous, I mean, what if we were in a matriarchal society? If we were, the women would be having babies with different men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now let's go on to one other are, is this interesting to you? No, that makes sense. Yeah. No, that totally oh, okay. makes sense. Then oh. let's go to one other example in South America. There are 46, there are 28, 28 out of 46 cultures in the Amazon that believe in something called partible paternity. Mm-hmm. I bet you've never heard of partible Mm-mm. paternity. Okay. Well, if I was a primitive scientist in the Amazon and I looked at my dog, and I noticed that if my female dog was mating with multiple males and then having a litter, I would think maybe it takes multiple males to make a healthy litter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would see a peccary, for example, ma- a female mating with multiple males and then having one baby. And I would think maybe it takes multiple males to have a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. That would be a primitive scientific observation. Mm-hmm. Well, evidently, these 28 tribes in the Amazon have the same notion. They believe you cannot have a healthy baby if you don't have sex with three or four men. So the same woman will have sex with multiple men. And then when she has the baby, she'll have three or four men who all think that's their baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they have a vested interest in protecting that baby. And the, the woman has the healthy baby. And she says, well, I have the healthy baby because I had sex with all these men. Mm-hmm. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Mm. So it's not a matriarchal society necessarily. But genetically speaking, mm-hmm. it's going to create a nice mix of genes mm-hmm. from the woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason I wrote Sex and God was for, to point out these very things that we're so used to the notion of Christian monogamy we don't realize there's a whole hell of a lot of other ways to be sexual. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole other practices to be sexual that are just as valid. There's nothing wrong with the way the Hadza do it. Nothing wrong with the way the Muoso do it. Nothing wrong with the Amazonian tribes do it. That's just another expression of sexuality. Right. I love it. It's just so multifaceted. There's no right or wrong way. It's just a way and whatever works for you is good enough and and i tell people that are trying to deal with religious and religious trauma in their sex lives in their sexuality that you have to invent your own sexuality right everything i've just mentioned here is an illustration of the breadth of our sexual uh, capacity and i we all have our own individual limits. I mean, there's certain things that I'm not interested in. So it's a limit for me, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other things I am interested in. Well, if I'm taught as a Catholic that only this amount of sex is, is, a, is appropriate, mm-hmm. then I'm going to miss all of this stuff over here that, that I could be experiencing. I might still be limited over here. I'll never like that. But all this stuff I'm missing because the Catholic Church told me it's wrong. Mm-hmm. For example, one of the most fun times I've ever had is having threesomes. I love having threesomes. Mm-hmm. They're they're the most they're fun. They're enjoyable. Everybody has a great time. I've I have never had a bad threesome, and I've had a ton of threesomes. So why shouldn't people enjoy that? It what who got harmed in the making of that movie? Right. <laughs> there was no. <laughs> And, and uh, no, I don't make movies of my threesomes. <laughs> <laughs> so the the fact is, you sh- you are allowing a religion from the day you're born. You're allowing a religion to tell you what you can and can't do, mm-hmm. who you can and can't love, what kind of sex you can and can't have. Who the hell is a religion telling you that? Yeah, there's no religion on this planet that is biologically informed about human sexuality. Yeah. But what is this overall like purpose as to why 
I mean, I know religion just wants to propagate, but what is their, like, why do they want to control the masses? Why does it want to propagate in the first place? Like, what is the larger vision that they have? It keeps the tribe together. It it keeps the tribe together. Most, um, we don't have tribes as much as we used to. We can't identify you know, I got this tattoo because that means I belong to your tribe, or I wear this headdress, that means I'm... So we don't have that component of self-identification. What we now have is religion. I wear a cross. A cross says I'm a Catholic. A cross says I'm a Christian or whatever. That's some of our identification. But what religion has done is religion has learned that if I can control your sexuality, I can keep you infected with the God virus. Mm-hmm. It, it works around something I call the guilt cycle, uh, see, the religion simply, if you, underst- if you understand evolutionary biology, you can understand religion much better. The, the key to understanding religion is to understand evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. The, the COVID virus is not a conscious thing. It doesn't have willpower. It's not trying to do anything. Okay. We as humans use the language use that language of will and trying and intention. But that's not really the way biology works. But I'm going to use the language here just so you understand what I'm trying to say. The God virus, I mean, the uh, COVID virus wants to get from my nose and into your lungs. That's what it wants to do. And then once it gets into your nose and into your lungs, it's going to, it's going to create lots of coughing and other things that will then bring the virus back out so that it can get into the next person's lungs. As I said earlier, the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, they're trying to sneeze on you. Just like a cold or a COVID virus is trying to get from one person to the next, the religions want to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So you've got to step back and say, religions are not a conscious thing. All they are is an entity that wants to get from one brain to the next brain. Mm-hmm. A religion is a brain infection. Mm-hmm. Mormons, Mormonism is a brain infection. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like that terminology, just look at history. Religions are all the time using the word infection and disease. And they're saying, uh, you don't want to, we see the religious right right now trying to say, we don't want a Muslim infection in our culture. They use those terms. In in the Middle Ages, they they would use Jews, the Jewish Jewish religion, and they would call it a, an infection, mm-hmm. and we had to eliminate. That's where the whole notion of of genocide comes from mm-hmm. in the in Nazi Germany. That that Judaism was an, a, a a religious infection. So even the religious people use this idea, mm-hmm. and all I'm saying is all religions are a, an infection of the brain, and the religion wants to get from one brain to the next. Mm-hmm. How does it do that? Well, the best way to do is control your sexuality. Mm-hmm. Every cell in your body is sexual. Everything. You are a sexual creature. Mm-hmm. So if I can control that, I control you. It's, it is really that simple. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds almost too simple, mm-hmm. but it is. Mm-hmm. So just, this is probably going to be the last question. I really want to touch on this as to religious LGBTQIA plus members um, and and the effect that they don't even, you know, that they aren't even conscious of when, you know, as they, you know, as they're in the, like, why even practice religion do, if they understand what has been said about, you know, the way that they choose, how they choose to live their lives and like, how do they manage that relationship? It doesn't make it doesn't compute. In it, my no, brain. it doesn't make sense. <laughs> if you look at it, if you look at it rationally, it makes no sense. Yeah. But religion isn't rational. Yeah. And, and to try and understand it from a rational perspective is to totally miss the mark. Okay. And you'll go down that you'll go down the wrong alley all the time. <laughs> yeah. So let's go back here. I, I too see the horrible damage that religions do to the LGBTQ community, and yet I see people deeply religious who are who who are gay 
who are mm-hmm. lesbian, who are bisexual, who are trans. So there must be something else going on there. If they're if they can be so deeply persecuted, well, let's go back to early childhood training. I have I I was I worked with early in my career as a child psychologist and family. I did a lot of family work. I in my entire career I never saw. I saw a lot of abused children, but in my entire career, I never saw one abused child say anything except, I love my mother, I love my father. They had been beaten silly. They had been spanked terribly, bruised. They may have cigarette marks mm-hmm. on them. And yet they will still say, I love my mother, I love my father. Mm-hmm. Now that defies rationality. Mm-hmm. But think about this. A child at that stage is totally dependent upon the parent for survival. Mm-hmm. So our species has been genetically programmed to listen very carefully and, and to our parents. If my parent says, don't go over there because a lion will eat you, I better listen to him or I won't be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If my parent... So the kids that listen to their parents at those early stages in life, up to five or seven years of age... They've survived today. You and I are the product of kids that listen to their parents. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The kids that didn't listen to their parents wandered off and got eaten by a hyena. They're not here to tell the story, right? I mean, that's pretty simple. Now let's go the other side. Parent says, don't go over there because there's demons underneath that bush. Don't read that book because the devil will get in your head. Don't talk to those people because uh, they will infect you with Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. So when the parent says, don't do that, at the same time as they're saying, don't do this, the child has no way to discriminate. They don't know which is true. I mean, surely don't go over there and get eaten by the lion, but don't go over there and get eaten by the devil either. The child has no way to discriminate. So children are so dependent that they deeply believe, and on well into adulthood, they still believe this shit. Well, that LGBTQ person was raised religious, and they were told over and over again, you're going to go to hell if mm-hmm. you if you do X, Y, or Z. You're a bad person. Your body's your enemy. All this stuff. Remember I told you I didn't know one kid that ever said I hate my parents right. that had been abused? Well, that's what the LGBT persons, they've been so bonded to the notion that they can't leave it and they can't feel comfortable and they're scared to death of leaving religion because they don't want to go to hell. And yet they know they're going to go to hell because they're gay. Right. I mean, it's there's a lot of what we know as cognitive dissonance. What are you thinking? Oh, it's just uh, it hurts my brain. Like, if (laughs) I'm trying to empathize, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, because I, I mean, I fall on that spectrum, and I definitely, you know, I grew up religious, and so I still feel that shame, whether I want to, you know, admit it or not. But I'm more um, openly, I more openly reject it now. Right. Uh, And you're practicing challenging boundaries. Right. The story you told earlier is that the more you challenge the boundaries, the easier this is going to get for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I do challenge that cognitive dissonance quite a bit. And then I think that it like, you know, even though she was offended by it, it was, it kind of, you know, it stirred, it stirred something inside of her to be curious and it kind of attracted her to me, which was, you know, I planted the seed, you know, plant the seed. Exactly. See what and that's happens. a good thing. Yeah. Plant seeds, whether she ever agrees with you or not, is irrelevant. Right. You planted a seed for her to start thinking more creatively, yeah. opening our mind a little bit to other options or opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I hope as a result of this, if we have some LGBTQ plus people watching or listening, that they look at their own childhood uh, indoctrination mm-hmm. and maybe understand that that their feelings about their body, feelings about other things related to who they are and what their body is, is counter to most what most religions teach. And... You might want to take a moment and think about that and question that. Mm-hmm. There's one other component. Well, we can talk about this another time, but I know we're running late and I need to move on mm-hmm. myself. 
So it was yeah. all good questions. Good yeah, questions. Really fun, fun talking to you today. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. And I'm, guess, I'm guessing there's a few things I want to highlight. What are some things you had never heard about today in our talk? Well, hidden estrus and the... Um, estrus. Hidden estrus. Hidden right. estrus. And um, the, what did you call it? The pair... Pair bonding. Pair bonding. Yeah. That yeah. was really interesting because... Okay. It makes sense from a biological level. If you look at it, right, I love right. looking at the science behind it because instead of right, um, right. just kind of you know hypothesizing, like there are there is some serious uh, fact behind what you're saying today, and so you know it's, it makes yep. more sense. It it dissolves that it dissolves that dissonance for me um, because it, the hopefully is yeah, mm -hmm. and and try to memorize a few of these cultures. Because they are the exception to all this Christian bullshit. Right. The Muoso culture, the Hadza culture, the Amazonian cultures, the partable paternity, the Iroquois, uh, the Iroquois women who can vote, but the men right. can serve. I mean, these are all different ways of looking at sexual relationships yeah. and gender. Oh, and by the way, there's all sorts of tribes in North America that had transgender people in them, and they had a role and a place in it. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah. we will sign off for now. Like I said, I could have talked three hours today for this. <laughs> I'm so glad okay. that um, we've crossed paths. This has been eye-opening and relieving for me. Well, I think education helps people deal with the dissonance. Absolutely. And, and then it helps them reinvent, the, not reinvent, helps them create their own sexuality. Right. That's it, the it only way you're going to be happy. Thought. Yep. Go out there and create your own sexuality. Mm, I love it. Well, thank okay. you again, Daryl. You're welcome. Uh, are we finished or are we going gonna to do a third one? I hope that you all enjoyed the episode today. This is part two of a part four series. Part three is going to be about recovering from religion and how to deprogram ourselves. I hope you guys stay tuned for the next episode. Uh, you can find more updates on episodes on thepsycho.com. Music is Face In It by Fallen for Autumn on Instagram. Go give her some love, and I hope to see you guys next time. I want you to touch my body, let's